Hi everyone, welcome to CollabGab, a podcast all about music collaborations you love to remember and those you hope to hear. This is your host, AC, and today I have Rob here to talk about one of the most iconic and classic duos, in our opinion, in the history of music collaborations. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. You're so welcome. I'm so enthusiastic about our topic today. It's giving me energy. Uh, I can't (laughs) wait to talk about it. So thanks for bringing it into the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a cool song. It's a very cool song, which we'll tell you guys about in just a second. Before we discuss our song topic, tell me a little bit about the kind of music that you listen to and what you like. Okay, yeah. Um, So it varies somewhat. So I definitely like um, some EDM music, more atmospheric uh, EDM, not so much like your tropical house. I guess EDM and house you you use interchangeably, but... Mm -hmm. Um, kind of like a deep, more deep house. Yeah, maybe deep house is a way to, to, to think about it. Um, also, kind of, you know, I call it electropunk. Mm-hmm. So Daft Punk is is one of them. Um, my all-time favorite would be Justice, which is a mm. French duo, DJ's duo. Um, I've never been able to see them. They come to the United States probably two or three times a year. Um, so I'm still looking for them. To one um, location or to multiple? No, they do music festivals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Breakbot is another one, but oh, yes. I also Great. listen to um, some some indie rock, um, Fleet Foxes, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. And let's see, I love Bonnie Vare is great. Just flavors of the month right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I probably stick with those two genres. Okay. Yeah. That's a very good range. Yeah. Yeah. It's somewhere in. I like <laughs> yeah. it. We'll have to I... talk about some of those specifically. Another yes. time because I'd like to break them down a little right. bit. Right. You kind of ramp it up with the house music and then bring it back down with the maybe the more mm-hmm. acoustic indie stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to see a mix of those, but right. we can talk about that later. <laughs> so with that being said, what was your first concert? Oh, first concert. I was very young. My mom took us, to, my sister and I, to um, see John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh, that's back, great. Yeah, I think it was early 90s in Phoenix, uh, we went to what was then the Desert Sky Pavilion, uh-huh. I think it was called. And now it's had 12 different names since yeah, then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We sat on the lawn uh, with a blanket out, and that was my introduction to a live show. It was great. And I think we went two years in a row to John Cougar Mellon Camp. We At went, the same spot? Yes, the same venue. That's so fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. It was great. It was my mom's introduction, I think, to my sister and I, uh, sort of rock music. Well, and that's a yeah. perfect introduction, too. Yeah, Because it was it's a not lot too fun. crazy. I don't think I've never seen him. No, but... it's good, wholesome, American kind of country mm-hmm. rock. I don't even know how yeah, to describe it. Yeah, I classify it, it as that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good classification. And it's also, if you live in Arizona, it's kind of an iconic location for a concert because it's been there as long as I can remember. Yeah. And it's outdoors. You have no choice. Right. You can sit under an awning, but that's about as close as you can get to indoors at this venue. In fact, recently we were at a concert there where it rained the whole time and we it had did. no choice. It did. Yep. Yeah, we did. took cover under a what some sort of canopy or a tent, tent. Yeah, which, yeah, it provided some sort of support for us, but it was fun. It was very fun. memorable. Extremely, memorable. extremely, yeah. and that was a Rascal Flatts concert. So that's another. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great first concert, and yeah. I just like to ask that just because it it's interesting to hear where people start with their mu- kind of their music career, totally. whether it was their choice to go to that concert or not. It's still <laughs> Probably really more my mom's. Yeah. Of course, my first concert was definitely my choice. Um, How was it? Well, I mean, I bet you can guess what it was. Insync? Yeah. It wasn't? Really? (laughs) I didn't realize. Which I've actually talked about in another episode, but best tour, 
best concert and best album of all time. Probably so. on paper, by volume or by dollars, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure they did very well from yeah. that. It was the height of their career. Okay, so tell me, what song are we discussing today? Okay, we are going to talk about the song Under Pressure by Queen featuring David Bowie. Great. Yes. I love this song. It's fantastic. And you don't really think too much about the history of it no. when you listen to it. But now that we've kind of taken a dive into what this song means and why it was written and how it was written, it really puts it into perspective. Definitely. Why this song? Uh, I think, number one, the two iconic pop artists of that time joining together and collaborating and writing together, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury, um, okay. along with Queen, obviously. The timing of it is interesting to me, being at 1980. Uh, it, I think it was written and recorded in 1980, released in 81. Um, it was an interesting time for Queen. They were kind of sunsetting a bit. They, a lot of their good music had been behind them. Bowie was right in the thick of it at that point. Also, it's right in the pocket of best dance beat per minute. Did you know this? No. It's at 120 beats per minute. And like they say that the best dance songs are between 120, 125 okay. beats per minute. And this is at 120. And so it just gives you, it just makes you freely just move your hips a little bit. Every time I hear it, it yeah. is so fun to listen to yes. it, like you said just because of the beat yeah and it does it makes you want to move oh and so dynamic the song too it's extremely yeah in in true queen fashion mm -hmm. how they kind of put their they fragment their songs or mm -hmm. they arrange their songs in certain vignettes if you will mm -hmm. yeah i love that and it's a great duo too because of that reason mm -hmm. but also because david bowie is so iconic mm -hmm. and his music is timeless yeah so it's it's a perfect match yeah i think so let's first talk about queen in general yeah so i'm not even really sure where to begin with this because of how important and influential they are and have been in for decades with freddie mercury and still to this day they've been instrumental in setting the tone for many bands and vocalists throughout time no matter what genre they're in i think that people can reflect on their imprint in the music industry and really look at their music and how they were influenced by them. Totally. So their their rock meets opera approach to their music and music in general is incomparable. It's right. the best. Yeah, it is. Night at the Opera, I'm, you said opera, you know, yeah. and, and that's, and Queen's very operatic, if that's a word. I think that is a Yeah, word. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so that is an interesting album, Night at the Opera. Mm-hmm. Which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. How Queen became Queen is something I want to talk about. And we're going to go into their history just a little bit because I think it sets the precedent for our conversation in general about this particular song. So in the 60s, the group Smile needed a lead vocalist. I don't know. Do you know Smile? No. I don't know Smile Never either. heard of them. Okay, well, they needed a lead vocalist, which Brian May and Roger Taylor were already part of, who are members of Queen. And they decided to include Freddie Mercury as the lead vocalist. And then shortly after that, John Deacon joined them. I also want to note, because I think this is really cool, they all completed college around that time too, hmm. which is pretty notable for a band for each member to have that accomplishment in their life. Totally. You don't really unique. hear about that. No. College grads just finishing up college, right? Mm -hmm. And each one in, in a very unique 
kind of scientific field mm-hmm. I, from what I understand. I don't know specifically, but I don't, I don't know that either, but I, yeah, I think so. And I, I also think that that is why they sound the way that they do because they bring that experience to mm-hmm. the table. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, and they were so passionate about the music that they were making Yeah. that it's obvious in each song yeah. and each album. So here's another thing that's crazy to me. They weren't immediately popular in the U.S., more so in the U.K. at first. And after their 1975 album, A Night at the Opera, Mm -hmm. they received more fame and recognition. So that kind of set the tone for them and set the bar. And obviously they had hits until that point, but this one set the stage, no pun intended. And then Bohemian Rhapsody, which would most would say was their most iconic song, Mm -hmm. was on this album. Yes. So that really like I said, set the stage, Mm -hmm. not to use that pun again, but it did. So (laughs) A Night at the Opera was really expensive, apparently, for them to make one of the most expensive albums at the time that it was released. But I think it was worth it because it quickly became a top 10 and it also went platinum. Right. In 1975, I think they finished it and released it. Uh Bohemian Rhapsody, like you mentioned, You're My Best Friend is on Uh that album. Love of My Life, which is an incredibly, like, soft and, and endearing song that Freddie Mercury sings and it's it's got a harp in it. If you listen to the song so it's got a harp in it. I, I love that. I completely agree with you and that song didn't stick out to me as much until I saw the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, in same. In that movie, I from that movie when I think about it, that's the song that sticks out to me the most. I think oh, because really? it fell in line with the theme of the movie yes. and his relationship with his girlfriend at the time. Right. So a couple things on those songs. Um you're My Best Friend was written by the bassist, John Deacon, and it was about his wife, Veronica Tetzlov. Tetzlov. Am I saying that right? Tetzlov, yeah? Yeah. Um, and then the first song, the lead track on that album, Night at the Opera, was is called Death on Two Legs. Okay. And it's about the main record studio owner, the main producer at Trident Studios. Oh. This is in the movie, too. Yes. And apparently they fought tooth and nail to have creative control over the album. And this song, Death on Two Legs, is about that producer or yes. about that record or the studio owner. Yeah. I remember that. Yes. That wasn't Mike Myers' character. Was it, it was. It, it was certainly it? Okay, was. Yeah. yeah. Now, Trident Studios, too, they've recorded tons of UK artists, including okay. the, Beatles, the Beatles' White Album was recorded in part at that studio. And apparently Night at the Opera, the Queen's album, was recorded over, over six different studios. Uh, in in London in the UK, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, might have might have um, had to do with why it was so expensive to make. Very maybe, good point. Maybe okay. Well, we're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. I think that that totally makes sense, and that's really interesting information too. Totally. Yeah. I feel like Mike Myers' character in the movie just—it's very hard to take him seriously. Oh yeah. But and now I see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that scene is awesome. In, and the, in, in the so, office. I know exactly, yes, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. So cool. Yeah. I was recently reading an article about them, and I read this quote that completely stuck out to me because it pretty much sums up every hit that they had and other songs in between. The, the quote said, no one in the band takes anything too seriously. Otherwise, the arrangements wouldn't be as ludicrously exaggerated as they are. And I find that 100% correct. Absolutely. I think it's completely true. And yeah. like I said before, I think their background aids in that, but... The arrangements are exaggerated, and that opera component adds to that. Totally. It's 
you can't you can't hear you never hear anything else like it. No, they they have. stand alone. Queen does in terms of their arrangements and operatic mm-hmm. uh, versions of their rock songs. There are elements of their operatic style, their their vignette arrangements in their songs, mm-hmm. in obviously under pressure, and also their their ability to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're highly educated musicians. Yes. Um, they were very collaborative. Do we want to tell the story about the under pressure uh, uh, recording? I do. I just want to talk a little bit about kind of their next steps in their career as a band. Mm-hmm. Queen releases The Game, the album The Game, in the early 80s. They're still in their prime popularity. And believe it or not, there were times where it kind of ebbed and flowed mm-hmm. for their popularity, in the U.S. especially. From this album, two number one singles were released, Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Another One Bites the Dust. And I'm also happy to report that this became their first number one album in America ever, hmm. which is pretty crazy. Yeah. They really wrote... 82? 80. 1982? 1980. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Is this is this the album that Under Pressure was on? Or no, that was no, Hot Space. it was Hot Space. Yes. So not too long after that, they released their greatest hit in okay. 1981. And their 10th studio album shortly after that, Hot Space, Yes. in 82. Yeah. And this leads me to discuss our topic um, of the day, which is Under Pressure. Yeah. And that was originally released as a single in 1981. And then it appeared on Hot Space in 82. Right. So, yes, let's talk about this. Cool. Yes. In the, depth. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, I want to parallel it with um, Another One Bites the Dust because they're both bass- line driven songs extremely yeah and so the story goes with under pressure um that it was 1980 and um queen is in montreux switzerland in a studio called mountain studios which they had purchased at that time at that point in time and this this story comes That's from yeah they had purchased that studio oh, wow um, this story comes from Brian May, who wrote an article in Mirror Magazine, which is a UK periodical, I believe. Um, this was following David Bowie's passing in 2016, I think. And he wrote that Queen was in the studio recording their album Hot Space mm-hmm. in 1980. And um, David Bowie was in town in Montreux mm-hmm. and came to the studio and they started a jam session. John Deacon... The bass player was the one that started the bass riff, the very iconic doom 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 doom, right? Yep. So they they did a jam session, um, no lyrics. It started as a as a music, just a a, a instrumental backtrack, mm-hmm. and they started recording. They took a break. They went out for lunch or dinner. I can't. I don't know which. Um, they had some drinks, and when they came back, John Deacon had forgotten the bass riff. Yes. Did you read that? I did. Isn't that cool? I did. Oh, that's cool, but it's interesting. It's so interesting. Did you know Especially who? since he created. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you know who, who got him on the straight and narrow there? It was David oh, Bowie. Oh, no, it was David Bowie. It was Bowie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went over and was actually touching the fretboard on the bass guitar to show him where that, that riff was. But I feel like Freddie Mercury was credited with writing a good portion of the lyrics. I, yes. Now, I'm, I'm going to get to the lyric part. Okay. But that part I found interesting because over time, when you start to ask or when you start to research who actually put together that baseline, a lot of people point to John Deacon, mm-hmm. but John Deacon will point to David Bowie and David Bowie will point back to John Deacon. So it's just another 
um, a respectful of, collaboration. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. just another piece of 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 evidence that you know to collaborate at this genius level. I think it takes some some modesty and some mm-hmm. some ability to sort of defer credit, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 maybe John did create it and. And David Bowie kind of got them back on track when they returned from their lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just an interesting aspect. So the lyrical part, the lyrical part. Apparently, they completed the the instrumental backtracking in one day. Not mm-hmm. completed, but they had arranged it. And I don't think they mixed it all in one day, but they had put together some things. When they went to the to the to the vocal room mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, each member of Queen. Yeah, yeah. But they were already in the studio. Yeah, I don't know how how you would term that. Where they recorded? Yeah, where they recorded the lyrics part. Each member of Queen had a chance to go into the to the studio part and belt out whatever lyrics just came to them naturally. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I couldn't believe it either. It was so yeah. really cool. And then I think they took bits of bits and pieces um, and incorporated it into the final lyrical content. Um, I would have liked to have seen more of this in the movie. Yes. Honestly. Right, with Under Pressure. I don't think they touched on David Bowie not at all. Not they even a bit. I no. think it all took place prior to this. They, no, they, you're right, because it got into the 90s in the mm-hmm. Live Aid concert, but they skipped over the David Bowie part, which is really fascinating. So Bowie took over the next day. So this is all happened in one day. Mm-hmm. Next day, Bowie comes back to the studio and kind of proclaims that he's going to take over the creative control of the song, mm-hmm. which Queen sort of relinquished. They said, okay, go for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I read that it was Bowie that took over the lyrical direction of that song. And I think they all credit each other. Totally. And that goes back to that respect piece. Yeah. I think that, like you said, their level of um, fame at the time and their level of musical experience mm-hmm led them to be able to do that. I think that they all respected each other so much yeah. as a band and then David Bowie respecting them as who they are. Totally. Led them to that. Yeah. I don't know if we want to mention this, but and you might have already said this, but David Bowie actually was going to sing backup on a different song called yeah. Cool Cat. Yes. Which they cut him out of the, the They didn't final like cut. how it sounded apparently. He didn't. He David Bowie. David didn't. did not like yeah. how he, he sounded on it, so they cut him out of yeah. it. Yeah. Which it worked out for them. Yeah. Because they yeah. produced a great hit. Yes. They that did. we all love today. Under pressure. Yeah. Beautiful song. The lyrical content, do they take you from hopelessness to hope? Uh-huh. Through love. And, in a know, very upbeat way. Yes, they do. Yeah. In 120 beats per minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> While you're dancing. Yeah, exactly. So here's another thing that's interesting about this song is that David Bowie never performed this with them live. Mm. No, I didn't know that. Wow. Ever. Until after Freddie Mercury died. Yeah. And we can talk about the... We'll talk about Live Aid in a second. Not necessarily related to that. But I do want to mention something else that I saw... Have you first of all, have you ever seen the music video for this? Not for under pressure, but I understand that it's uh like kind of a is it a live per- it looks like a, they're doing it live or they're not? They're not in it. It's what? like buses and cars moving and it I think it's oh. supposed to be an overview of feeling under pressure. Yes. It's very different. Let's really? I mean it was obviously pre some of Michael Jackson's videos and pre some of the um, MTV stuff that we see now. Over choreographed. Yes, there was no choreography. It was right. not that type of thing. But I also don't think that really fits in with their 
image. Totally. So it's just very interesting and different. Yeah. But there's also an acapella version of this song. And it forces really? you, yeah, it forces you to hear their voice and their talents as they are with no backing. Yeah. So acapella is always really interesting because you hear that true voice. Yes, you do. And these are good true, or bad. And this is very good. Yeah. Listen. It forces you to hear their voices true to what they are. Yes. Without good backing, or bad. good or bad, absolutely. And these are two extremely iconic vocalists mm -hmm. that are so distinct individually, and then when they're together, it. It's like a symphony. It's yes. And I think that Bowie, he understood the brilliance of Freddie Mercury and the range that mm -hmm. Freddie Mercury had. Absolutely. And even you see this in, in this live performance we're going to talk about um, where David Bowie s steps back and allows another artist to sort of take the lead. And he brings sort of the tenor um, mm -hmm. in, in the vocals. Mm -hmm. And I just love watching him in those situations because you can tell he's deferring. He's... He's allowing other musicians to sort of take the, yes. the forefront. In the most appropriate times, yeah, too. I mean, yeah. obviously, they wrote the lyrics that way, but it the acapella version almost sounds like they're having an animated conversation. Oh, wow. Listen yeah. to it later if you have a chance. I'll have to, definitely. It's, it's really cool. After that, that hit, um, they started to see a decline in admiration from their UK and US fans. Mm -hmm. And then they went on to tour Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And that wasn't something that a lot of rock groups did at the time. That mm -hmm. was a big span of touring. So after this, their fans in Britain recognized their relevance once again, after their performance at Live Aid in 1985. And that Live Aid performance, as we, we saw that, and we saw the rendition of it in the movie, which was identical almost yeah to, it the, really was. to the real one we saw the movie and then we went home and watched the live so performance. Did we, yeah. it, i think everyone did it's pretty powerful it's extremely powerful yeah. especially after seeing the movie and it's yeah. so fresh in your mind right and just knowing what you know about freddie mercury and kind of what he was going through at the time because you wouldn't know yeah by watching it no and let me tell you We've watched more clips on YouTube um, in addition to the Live Aid performance, and it's definitely one for the books. It produced so much energy and life. Yeah. They brought so much to the stage. The band actually stopped touring after 1986. It was the last time that all four original members were on stage together. Wow. Believe it or not, I don't think people realize that because yeah. Freddie Mercury didn't pass away until quite some time after that. He was diagnosed with AIDS in 1987, and they didn't do much after that, right. live, performance-wise at least. And it wasn't until 1991 where you didn't see as much from them, and that's when his health became a topic of conversation. So yeah. people were starting to realize what was going on, and it's so unfortunate. But I, I had mentioned before that David Bowie didn't perform the song on tour before any audience until the 1992 Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Yes. And he sang it with Annie Lennox. Yes, and it's spectacular. It is spectacular. It's very, uh, it's very artistic. Very artistic. If you've seen this video of this performance, Annie Lennox, really, uh, her her physical appearance is, is striking. Isn't that a nice good way word? To put it? That isn't is an that, excellent. Isn't that a good description? Yeah. Yes. And Queen, by the way, Queen was in the background singing. Yes, as well. the whole band. Yes. yes, the whole band is performing. David Bowie and Annie Lennox took the mics. Yes. In Annie Lennox sings Freddie Mercury's portions Correct. of the song, which are a little higher register. And like I was saying, David Bowie kind of provides the tenor on the back end, which he does in the original recording anyway. Mm -hmm. But did you see the size of the crowd at this concert? I did. It's, it's, it was like live. I don't know the size numbers wise. I, I, I looked it don't. up. 72,000. And do you know how many were at Live Aid? 
I think over a hundred okay. or more. So it was somewhat comparable. Totally. And this was in the just same, Queen. Yes, in the same energy or too. Freddie Mercury tribute. Yeah. Right, right. Same energy of the crowd too. You you get a sense of in yeah. in, wa- in watching the Live Aid versus the Freddie Mercury tribute. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 a pretty cool performance to to watch. The at the Freddie Mercury tribute, um, apparently there's a moment where David Bowie, and he sings several of the songs in that tribute concert. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where he gets down on both knees and recites the Lord's Prayer. And apparently Brian May and John Deacon, um, they were really surprised by that yeah. and kind of emotionally moved by that. Mm-hmm. But again, just another ode to David Bowie and his sort of brilliance and authenticity. Authenticity, but also to Freddie Mercury. I mean, right. look at that. Right. That's incredible. Right. What an impact he made on them as musicians, but also all of those fans. Absolutely. Throughout yeah. so many, so much time and de- and to this day, decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, brought a lot to brought a lot to life. People realized that there were things going on that we didn't know, and I think all generations it resonated with them Agreed. when they saw it. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize all of that stuff. I mean, you know, you know some of the details, but you didn't know the whole background. And it's like that when they make a movie about a lot of artists. I haven't seen the Elton John one. Yet, but I know that there's a lot in there that we haven't seen. Yeah, I think it speaks to how wide sweeping Queen is in terms of fitting into different genres of music. Mm -hmm. They're operatic, they're rhythmic, they are rock, you know, and and that speaks to a broad audience. And so you get that that mainstream, that very wide um, reception. By audiences. Which is great, especially to this day. Totally. Yeah. Th- their think... music stands up. Under Pressure is, what, is it almost 39 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's going to be popular forever, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. But I think the Queen's relevance will stay with generations to come. Totally. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Let's move into our next discussion real quick before we wrap up. Yeah. Let's talk about who you might want to see collaborate in the future. Oh, right. Let's touch on this real quick. Yeah. I got to... I got to um, mention some of the bands that I spoke about earlier um, in my introduction. Um, I want to see, and this is, actually came out in pop in, in, in pop music recently, I want to see Fleet Foxes, um, who's, who are one of my favorite bands. Okay. I want to see them feature Post Malone. Yes. In a song. That is, I did not even think of that. Yeah, and Posty is oh. actually a big fan of Fleet Foxes, and there's this video on the World Wide Web recently in September of him um, belting out a Fleet Foxes song, like cigarette in hand, the whole thing. And he's belting out a Fleet Foxes song. So I know that he knows Fleet Foxes. Mm -hmm. I think it's up to Fleet Foxes to reach out to him, make the connection. His raspy, low register voice would sound so good mm-hmm. over their melodicism. It, 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 it's just a match made, I, in my opinion. That You nailed it. That is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, could, I was trying to think of somebody that they would sound good with. Right. And to be honest, I'm not as familiar with them. Sure. So I was thinking, okay, let's think. And I thought of Nate Roos. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like, and if, if anybody doesn't know who Nate Roos is, he's the lead singer of Fun. If you're local to Arizona, you know that he was the lead singer of the format, oh, which a lot of us love mm-hmm. um, from a certain period of time in our lives. Oh, definitely. I think I think he would add a level of enthusiasm to the Fleet Fox 
music, well classic music. Nate Roosewood, yes. Yes, because he has such a distinct voice. You hear him and you know exactly who that is. Yeah. And Immediately. It's, and he's kind of, he's got a kind of a spunk to his yeah. tone. Did he write spunk? Yeah. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might add, a, I think he would add this, this element of spunk <laughs> that they might need for their music. But I think that Post Malone is a perfect addition. Yeah. We recently saw him interviewed on Jimmy Fallon. Oh, yeah. And he is hilarious. At Olive Garden or no? At Olive Garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's perfect. He is so talented. Yeah. And I think he doesn't get the level of credit that he should. No. From some. He has a pretty big following. Yeah. But I think if you like one genre of music, you're not necessarily going to listen to him extensively. You're going to hear the, the popular songs and that's it. Love him or hate him, I don't know. Right. But I love him. It's oh, that. he's a crooner. I he classify is. him as a yeah, crooner for sure. Yeah, he is. He's very talented. Yes. I don't listen to his music particularly. I know his songs, obviously, but his voice is so noticeable. I think you said raspy. Did oh yeah, it's raspy. raspy. It's deep. It's sort of haunting at times, you know. It or I is, should say, yes. I should say that if he collaborated with Fleet Foxes, he would kind of fall right in line with their haunting, quote unquote, feel. But I think he needs, if he what, if he were to collaborate with them, I think he'd need to raise the bar in terms of, um, like I said with Nate Ruth, enthusiasm, and maybe take them to a little bit more of a, not that their sound isn't positive, but no, yeah. just more. Happy. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Because <laughs> he has that. Like, yeah. let's talk about Sunflower for a second. Okay. He has that level of... Oh, definitely. He does. It's, definitely. It's positive. Yes, it is. If, if you get the right melody together, um, it is certainly possible. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a great duo. Nate Roos or Post Malone. Posty, Posty. Posty. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Jimmy Fallon will direct it. Yeah. He should <laughs> At be. the Olive he Garden. He should be the producer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally. Well... Thank you so much for being here today. It was great to have you. Loved our topic of conversation. Absolutely. I look forward to uh, more, more, more podcasts. To, more to, collab gap. Yes, more collab gap. <laughs> yes. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.